one of my pet favorites in life is is hoaxes. I love hoaxes. One of my ironclad rules of hoaxes is if it sounds like a movie, it probably is a hoax. And I think it's because when people are making stories up, all they have is TV and movies. So they take a scene, they internalize a scene from a movie. And it's very interesting. Anthony Rapp did this a couple of times. Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McAleer. And welcome to the Anne and Phelan Scoop. I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July. I had a very low-key 4th of July because I am in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, where they, funny enough, don't celebrate the 4th of July. I think it's sore loser syndrome. But uh, uh, where are you, Anne McElhenney? Well, we've spent the last week covering the Kevin Spacey trial, and we've been in court yes. um, in London uh, today, though, we're not together because I have just become a new godmother again, right. um, which is very, very exciting. Of course, he's adorable. Um, so I'm actually in Ireland with a beautiful baby. So, um, yes. But what's happening in the scoop this week, Phelan? Kevin Spacey's trial. We were there, Southwark Crown Court, just outside my window here. Uh, where Spacey is twacing, facing 12 allegations of sexual abuse. Uh, um, it's very important. We need to tell you. We're going to tell you, we're going to give you some details of, of, of what has happened to him, but also why you should care. Why should you care about a liberal Hollywood icon uh, who probably doesn't share your values? Uh, and, and believe me, you should care. When you hear what's going on behind the scenes, you should care. And we're going to bring you some clips from our kevin spacey trial unfiltered podcast which is doing gangbusters by the way we're getting incredible response but we need you to listen to rate and to review because this is an incredibly important project um remember to do that please to do that and talking of the media and media collusion uh, which we will be talking about later we have a zinger from the los angeles times that you have to wait to hear from and we have a wonderful interview at the end of this show with our dear, dear friend, Daniel Knopf, who is a Hollywood legend, genius creator. Um, and he's bringing, like he's doing something very, very special for families, by the way, for Christmas. And I know it's July, but whatever. Uh, you will love it and you have to listen to this guy. Um, you have to listen to Daniel Knopf. What a great man. But first, we want to start by talking to you about, so we've been in Southwark Crown Court this week. Um, at the Kevin Spacey trial, you can see footage right now there of Kevin Spacey walking in, coming out of court, actually, uh, on the first day. And I think one of the things that I kind of wanted to maybe bring to people's attention, and Phelan, you'll take up after this, but a couple of things that struck me and I thought were really um, unfair and unusual. So in the UK system, in the United Kingdom, the British system, the... Um, the accused man, who is an innocent man, by the way, while he is not, you know, until he has been tried and convicted. So he is an, at the moment, he's an innocent man. However, in the UK system, he's in a dock and they have the cops kind of surrounding him, which I think is prejudicial for the jury because it makes him look pretty bad, even though he's in his suit and he's, you know, in his civvies and all that. But if you think in the, U, in the US system, the person who is up on trial for murder, by the way, or whatever, <coughs> extraordinary crime, sits there with their lawyer, which from the jury's point of view kind of gives them a, a legitimacy. Um, 
that I, I just feel it's very, very prejudicial. I was very surprised at that. I think the other thing I was surprised about, and maybe you can explain it, maybe Phelan, but I think the UK system is also very different in terms of jury, uh, jury selection. The jury selection took no time at all. Um, it was very, very fast. What happened was a lar- uh, quite a, a large pool, I think it was 28 originally, came in. They were asked to fill in um, a questionnaire, I suppose. And the judge even mentioned and kind of laughed about it and said, obviously, we know you all know who this guy is. We don't expect you not to know who this guy is. But I think they were kind of asking questions as well about what they knew about previous, perhaps previous cases with him, etc. But it all happened really quickly. It actually happened quite quickly. Right, Philem? Well, funny, the reason there used to be you could challenge uh, and, and each, each defendant would have multiple challenges, maybe six each. And actually, this is actually very instructive about how the state works and how the state wants, if the state wants to screw you, the state will screw you. So uh, I, it was actually an IRA trial in the UK where I think there were six defendants and they were being charged with bombings in Britain. And uh, they used each of their six challenges or multiple challenges to get a very sympathetic jury. And funny, it was all connected to the bright, to the Birmingham bombings. They were being charged and it was clear that they were they had done other things, but they had already convicted people for those other incidents, so they couldn't. So the jury spotted this jury the trial, like you're not telling us the full truth, and acquitted some of the guys and didn't find them guilty of, of the things that they were supposed to because they had been you know quite selected. So the government then brought in this law that basically you couldn't challenge a juror for unless unless there was serious, serious bias. So this is an example, and and this is why we're doing the Kevin Spacey podcast, is because they bring in changes to the law, they bring in changes to the justice system, and Spacey was a victim of this, to get people we don't like. You know, everyone's in favour, let's get the IRA bombers, let's get Kevin Spacey, and and conservatives don't care, conservatives are supposed to feel like they love the rule of law let's get this guy who's 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 a hollywood liberal but look they change the law for him so they can come for us that is just it's simple uh you're right he's sitting in a dock in a glass box as you say and, and i think you know he, and in the most horrible courtroom i think we've ever been in oh. and anna we've been in some courtrooms haven't we one of the things that's extraordinary to me um about southwark crown court you know because you know we've all seen those british dramas you know where you know the person ends up in court and it's all milady and all of that and the guys are wearing their their uh, wigs and stuff but i have to say the building southwark crown court i i've heard this you know i mean it's kind of a liberal thing by the way where people talk about a sick building a diseased building honestly I think if you had to work in that place, you'll end up with cancer. First of all, it has this horrific lighting, horrific sort of 1970s, circa 1970s, fluorescent lighting that kind of buzzes and flickers and gives off and and everyone turns jaundiced underneath it. And then there is basically almost every space has no windows, no natural ventilation. There are then these jerry-rigged kind of fans all over the place there are these really narrow um, corridors where people are squashed in. And obviously because of the interest in this court case, there's an enormous number of journalists and we're all squashed into these court, into these corridors. And it's, it's just, it's, it's horrible. It's a horrible, horrible environment. Um, but this is what we do for you, that we will bring you this news. And it's just, but it, I just wanted to bring it to a conscious level for people because I just think, my God. I mean, I think 
spending three or four weeks there as a defendant is punishment enough almost like i mean it, it, it it's it's awful and very interesting you said people working there notice the courtrooms are all interior there's no windows but the offices that people work in they all have windows so the workers have have uh given themselves nice offices with windows and uh made sure that the people in the courts um they they suffer what we want to do now um is we want to give you a few more tastes of the Kevin Spacey podcast that we've been working on. It's called Kevin Spacey Trial Unfiltered. The Kevin Spacey Trial Unfiltered. Listen to it, review it, give us a rating. We'd really appreciate it. But let's get a, get, let's get a flavor of some of the things that come up in this, um, in this podcast that are important. And I think one of the first things that comes up is the Me Too movement. This is the environment into which Kevin Spacey landed and where his career completely ended. And what I think happened was the culture changed from skepticism in relation to people making allegations about whatever, which is a healthy thing, I think. Um, and, but, all, you know, to, to a complete 360 where overnight it was believe all victims. I would even argue, Anne, it, it, it went more than 360. I, I, if you listen to the, the, the PR people, uh, panicking here. So the, the context of this is he got an email uh, on a Sunday saying, we're going to publish this article alleging you assaulted a 14-year-old boy. Uh, we're going to publish it this evening. And if you look at the uh, internal emails, and we've got those and they're in the podcast, you look at those emails, the PR people are completely panicking because no longer can you deny something. If you haven't done anything or if you have no memory of something you did 30 years ago and you're pretty sure you didn't do it, it's just seen as disrespectful to um, to deny it. You're seen like blaming the victim. And it's like, well, maybe there is no victim. But no, among the elite PR people, among the cultural elite, among those, those highly educated credentialized elite, they were saying you, it's no longer acceptable. This is the atmosphere mm-hmm. of Me Too. It's no longer acceptable to say I didn't do it and you're a liar. Uh, so that's, let's hear, that's the atmosphere when that email came in to Kevin Spacey accusing him of sexually assaulting a 14-year-old fellow actor, Anthony Rapp. Let's listen to this first clip. Suddenly everyone was re-examining what was acceptable in the entertainment industry. And there was also a rewriting of the rules that had previously governed how the media and the public responded to allegations. In the court of public opinion, there would be no presumption of innocence. Once the floodgates opened on this, you started to have hashtags like believe all women, believe all victims. There was suddenly a a newfound respect for, for victims telling their stories. Automatically victims were starting to be given more credence than the accused. Whereas, you know, five minutes earlier, the more powerful person was given more credence. That was a big shift. With this shift, even protesting one's innocence was frowned upon. Jennifer Keller was one of the lawyers who later represented Spacey when Anthony Rapp sued him for damages. She explains the difficulties Spacey and his advisors had with adapting to the Me Too and Believe All Victims moment. Uh, He was surrounded by advisors and PR people who were telling him that you can never say uh, something didn't happen, it's disrespecting the victim, you'll be victim blaming. It's all part of this, this um, this whole developing ethos, you know, that you, you believe the victim. You can't say somebody, it didn't happen. And we had all the back and forth. 
Spacey later told the court that he felt under pressure to express regret, even if he didn't think he had done anything to be sorry for. This is a reenactment of his trial testimony. And everyone was telling me, my publicists were very, very nervous about the PR angle and the crisis of it. And you have to respond to this and you have to say you're sorry. And even if it didn't happen, you can't push back. They're all going to call you a victim blamer. There was all this... And look, these were professional people. They were trying to help me. They were doing the best they could, but this was unprecedented. And I literally didn't know how to respond. You know, you heard Spacey's voice there, obviously, with, um, we, had a, we had a reenactment yes. with an actor. And by the way, our actors who, work on, on, who worked on this uh, podcast with us were absolutely fabulous. The second piece we want to listen to mm. now is very, very interesting um, and starts to, you know, this is where, you know, and we're not going to give away the whole game because we want you to listen to the podcast very much so. But uh, certain elements of Anthony Rapp's story started to unravel and there seemed to be a tendency, he seemed to have a tendency to exaggerate, to be very dramatic and to perhaps embellish stories to a level where maybe they just didn't happen at all. Yeah, funny, this is, I, I mean, one of my pet favorites in life is is hoaxes. I love hoaxes um, because I think, you know, they they tell us a lot about the people doing the hoax, but they also tell us a lot about how we fall for hoaxes. And one of my ironclad rules of hoaxes is if it sounds like a movie, it probably is a hoax. You know, if you if you can picture it, if you if you're thinking, oh, I can, that is a great, that would make a great movie. The story is probably false. When I read the uh, Virginia Tech rape case, the Rolling Stone article, I read the article about the woman being thrown on the glass table, and I was thinking that's a scene from a movie. And I think it's because when people are making stories up, they have no real, they don't read books anymore. Uh, all they have is TV and movies. So they take a scene, they internalize a scene from a movie. And it's very interesting. Anthony Rapp did this a couple of times. So this is Rapp explaining how he was so emotionally uh, involved and how he was just, how he was so inspired by someone's testimony uh, in the New York Times that he felt impelled, compelled to go forward with his story. So let's hear that piece from the podcast. Rapp said he decided to come forward with his allegations after he read actress Lupita Nyong'o's essay in the New York Times about being sexually harassed by Harvey Weinstein. It came out as the Me Too movement was gathering momentum. In a 2018 speech after receiving an award, Rapp described how Nyong'o's story inspired him. It was a quiet moment, sitting by my window in my apartment in New York City, reading the New York Times. Lupita Nyong'o's story that she shared about her experiences with Harvey Weinstein over the years. Her personal story moved me to the core. It's a dramatic story, perhaps too dramatic. Spacey's lawyers would later argue that many of Rapp's allegations were suspiciously like scenes from movies, and even claimed that one of his central allegations was directly lifted from a play he had just acted in. But those were arguments for a different day. That's the clip. I, I think we should give you then what actually ha- what turned out. So it turns out that Lupita Nyong'o's uh, article ran in the New York Times. Yeah, ten days before the BuzzFeed article ran. But it turns out that Anthony Rapp, uh, because he had a hand over all his emails and text messages, had been in contact with the BuzzFeed journalist days, weeks before Lupita Nyong'o's article 
ever appeared. And and look at what he says. It was a quiet moment sitting by my window in the apartment in New York City, reading the New York Times. And it's like that you think you're in a movie, Anthony Rapp, you know, and when you know when something sounds like a movie, it's generally not true. That's a it's a good rule of 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 Jussie Jussie Small A, you know, a noose and signs and go home and and homophobic. And it's like again, it's like something of a Law and Order episode, but it's just not true. Well, I think the other question maybe people have who are listening and have maybe been you know listening to our podcast, listening to this story about Anthony Rapp might be, how did he, like, it seems extraordinary that he suddenly was going to sue Kevin Spacey for something that happened 30 years before. And there, there's a story in this, and it kind of, it, it kind of echoes what you said at the beginning, Phelan, of the podcast. You were sort of alluding to that and why we as conservatives should care deeply about this story. So basically, while this Me Too thing was, was brewing in the world, New York decided, and you can explain it better than me, Phelan, decided, you know, politically decided that they were going to make it super, 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 super easy for anyone to come with allegations that were even extraordinarily old and even allegations that were actually statute barred because of the statute of limitations. And this case is exactly that. 30 years is outside the statute of limitation. Guess what New York decided to do? And I believe it's our our dear friend, Governor Cuomo, right, Philip? What did he decide to do? Yeah, he decided he decided to get rid of the statute of limitations. You know that if something happened thirty years ago, suddenly you could come forward and accuse someone. I mean, and Kevin Spacey, by the way, was accused of doing something over a ten-minute period over thirty years ago. Um, and I mean, he was a, an itinerant actor, a struggling actor, going from sublet to sublet. And this is why. There is a statute of limitations. Who could remember, if you're a young itinerant actor, who could remember where you lived? Who could remember what city you're in, where you would be? And so so Rapp was able to say, he did it to me 30 years ago. I'm going to sue him in court. And this is what the, the state do. They change, if they can't get a conviction, rather than, they, they view not getting a conviction as a failure, as opposed to a success of the justice system. In February 2019, former Governor Andrew Cuomo signed a look-back window law beginning in August of that year. Victims had a 24-month window between August 2019 and August 2021 to file claims no matter how long ago the abuse occurred. Uh, I think the look-back statutes are, are a terrible thing. I think they... Really, they undermine due process for someone who's accused. Because if you are accused of something, conduct that allegedly occurred decades ago, it puts you in an almost impossible situation because memories fade, witnesses die, and it's almost impossible to be able to access exonerating exculpatory evidence. And the jury is just left believing the, the accuser. And particularly in this climate, it's very dangerous where everyone is taught to just believe the accusers without question. I, I just think it's uh, it's leading to a lot of injustice. It's leading to a lot of false claims. When people know that they can say something happened in a 10-minute span 35 years ago and get $40 million for it, you're going to have a lot of false claims. And it, it celebrities are targets. I've, I've represented a couple of celebrities, cases that did not get filed who felt they had no choice but to pay off obvious liars because if the allegation was even made, they would lose their careers. 
Since the case was civil and not criminal, no jail time was on the table. But certainly the consequences for being found liable would have been almost as devastating for Spacey. There would be no coming back from that kind of scarlet letter. However, there are distinct differences between civil court and criminal court, with different risks and rewards. In a criminal case, the jury needs to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt as to the defendant's guilt. But in a civil trial, the jury only needs to be convinced of the preponderance of evidence, a 51% level of certainty. That is a much lower bar for complainants. So the journalist not only worked with Anthony Rapp to get the story out, but there was a number of problems with Rapp's story. If BuzzFeed had done proper journalism on this story, this story would never have run. Just like if they'd done proper journalism on the BuzzFeed article, it would never have run as well. And on the on the on the Steel dossier, if they'd done yes. proper journalism on the on the buzz on the Correct. on the Steel dossier, it wouldn't have run in Buzz BuzzFeed. But the problem was in both cases, the stories were too sexy. They were too fabulous that the last thing you wanted to do was to fact check and, and realize you're going to have to pull this story. Yeah. I mean, how great that they would have this, that they would be the ones responsible for Kevin Spacey being destroyed, but even nicer to have, to be responsible for destroying President Trump. So yeah, this is, this is the kind of journalism that, yeah. that, that BuzzFeed do. So what happened was, Anthony Rapp said, oh, I saw Spacey, I can't, I think it was at the 2008 Tonys. I froze, it was terrible, it was, I've got PTSD. Adam Vary, the BuzzFeed journalist, did some research and, and Kevin Spacey had never attended those Tonys, right? So the story was not true. Anthony Rapp is a great witness from 30 years ago, but he can't even remember what happened 10 years ago. So he knows this is a credibility issue. So he just decides to memory hold it, pretend it never happened. And there's other there's other uh, aspects too. So let's hear that and let's let's even see what the judge says as well. They revealed that Vary seemed to be willing to collaborate with Rapp to cover up discrepancies between his memory and provable facts. Here's lawyer Chase Skolnick questioning Vary about how he decided to present, or rather, not present, an inconsistency in Rapp's account. This is uh, page 31 is an exchange on October 27, 2017, starting at 5.01 p.m. You see that? Yes, I do. And your text is in gray, right? And Mr. Rapp's appears in blue. Correct. Right? And you wrote to Mr. Rapp, one thing to make you aware of, we can't seem to play Spacey at the Tonys in 2008. He didn't present Tonys in 2008. He didn't present and it wasn't nominated and there's no photos we can find. We don't doubt he was there but we don't want to nail down a specific date that Spacey could then just flatly deny. So Mr. Rapp provided you a detail about the last time he had seen Mr. Fowler, right? Yes. You determined that detail was not accurate. And what did Vary do with this problem? The article ultimately made no mention of the 2008 Tonys. That's right. When confronted with evidence that Anthony Rapp was just plain wrong in his recollection of recent events, Vary covered for him. This happened again when it came to Rapp's scant details about the alleged party the night he says Spacey assaulted him. Vary told Rapp in a text, quote, Similarly, we're also going to steer away from exact specificity in the story for the party 
unquote. Vary told Rapp that he was going to be vague about these details to prevent Spacey from coming up with facts that would mean he could, quote, specifically deny, unquote, the allegations. This is the very opposite of what journalists are supposed to do. And it puts Spacey in an impossible position of facing damning but deliberately vaguely written allegations designed to make it almost impossible to answer and refute them, especially given the tight deadline. But BuzzFeed's readers and the world knew none of this. Instead, Vary and BuzzFeed presented Rapp as a reliable narrator of an event 30 years previous, whilst neglecting to mention he was completely wrong about something dramatic he said had happened less than a decade ago. The, the, the media malfeasance in this story is, is amazing. And again, it's BuzzFeed. Uh, BuzzFeed have no longer exist, thank God, uh, because they're not a journalistic organization. They're a deeply ideological organization. Again, they've used exactly the same tactics uh, of lack of journalistic curiosity. As I always say, when journalists are not curious, it's because they don't want to know the answer. So look, you need to go now to the uh, Kevin Spacey trial unfiltered. That's our nine episode podcast. We've been working on it for six months. Uh, it'll tell you a lot about Kevin Spacey. It'll tell you a lot about America, but also it'll tell you about where the system is going and how you must cry stop. If you see your enemy being persecuted, you need to run over and help them because they're coming for you next. And it's interesting that you talk, Philem, about, um, you know, you're talking about the uh, media malfeasance, uh, because what I wanted to say then was, you know, just, you know, a, a, a recent example, as you said there, you know, great film. Yeah, BuzzFeed are gone. But yeah, but the Los Angeles Times and all the rest of them are still there. And we had an egregious example of the Los Angeles Times type of journalism. So let's first of all, I think to set this up, let's play this extraordinary clip from Joe Biden, President Joe Biden this week, uh, getting getting very, very mixed up about uh, who the Russians are fighting against. So let's just have a quick listen to that to that clip. To what extent has Vladimir Putin been weakened by recent events? It's hard to tell, but he's, he's clearly losing the war in Iraq. He's losing the war at home. And he has uh, become a bit of a fly around the world. So obviously, you know, the man is, I mean, you know, I mean, he's, uh, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to be accused of elder abuse, but I feel like saying this, it is elder abuse, but then he shouldn't be the president of the United States. So basically he said, He's clearly talking about, about Putin. He's clearly losing the war in Iraq. Flash over to the Los Angeles Times and you can see what the Los Angeles Times did. So they've, they've put in the quote there. He's clearly losing the war in and they have brackets, Ukraine. So as opposed to writing and saying the president of the United States made an extra, you know, this isn't a snafu. This isn't forgetting somebody's birthday, right? Yeah. You know, this is a huge, huge error. So um, extraordinary. But the LA Times stepped in to help, to help, to be helpful. So that's who, that's who, yeah. that's who the media is. Yeah, BuzzFeed uh, might be gone, but the LA Times are there. Oh, yeah. Uh, look, uh, I, you, I think we all remember when, when they were trying to discredit Ronald Reagan. There was this whole thing that he was senile in office. And the only piece of evidence they've ever produced was that he once confused the name of his treasury secretary with his education secretary. And I remember a friend of mine saying that to me as if it was a, 
you know, a, a sign of deteriorating mind. You know, they wanted to make out Ronald Reagan to be this kind of senile old man in office. And now no one talks about Ronald Reagan anymore because I would put Ronald Reagan's speeches, you know, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, they've, they've escaped the sullied bonds of earth, you know. Uh, I put those conversations to someone who doesn't know the difference between Iraq and the Ukraine. Or, well, they do, but their brain is not able to cognitively transmit it to their mouth. That's the media for you. Well, well. so just again, I'm going to remind everyone, please, to go to the Kevin Spacey podcast, Kevin Spacey trial, unfiltered, on all uh, everywhere you get podcasts, please give us a rating, give us a review. Um, as I think you said earlier, Phelan, and I, obviously this is coming out, we're recording this a few days before um, it comes out. And the last time we looked, I think we were almost at 100, number 100 in true crime around the world, which is kind yeah. of extraordinary, very high for, for us. So we're very excited about that. Um, but the other thing we want to do before the end of the show is to bring you this amazing uh, um, interview we did earlier with our friend Daniel Knopf, who is a comp- an absolute genius, by the way. Some of you will remember um, the amazing show that he created called Carnival for HBO. But let's go over to that now as we introduce, we'll introduce Daniel. And what he has come up with, his idea, is something really special that I think you as yes. an audience are going to be very interested in getting involved with for Christmas. I know this sounds weird. All right, it's early for Christmas thinking, but don't, it's never too early to be thinking and planning for, for, for families. So let's go over to that now. So we're joined now by Daniel Knopf. Uh, welcome to the show, Daniel. And Daniel, your your CV, your resume is so varied and, and wide. We're going to actually let you introduce yourself. Who, who is Daniel Knopf? You know, I was uh, first 20 years of my adult life. I was a I was a health insurance broker consultant and I was writing at night and I was an aspiring writer and I was a consumer of entertainment product like everybody else. And uh, after a a 20 year overnight success, I sold a series to HBO, found myself uh, an executive producer and and creator of a show called Carnival, which has lasted just two years, but has gone on to become sort of a a, a cult phenomenon. Um, It's regularly moving up those lists of, you know, canceled too early, you know, Um, and there's still a, a really ardent fan base for it. Went on to do uh, other series, um, Supernatural, Spartacus, Blood and Sand, a stint on that for the first season. Um, I ran Dracula for NBC, um, then moved on to The Blacklist, spent three years there um, doing an immense amount of writing on that show. And I created a show for Nickelodeon and Imagine Kids and Family for Ron Howard and Ron Howard's company. Um, it's about five kids who get you know shot up into space. That's the that's the astronauts show. The astronauts. Yeah, and uh, and that got me an Emmy nomination of all things. Usually, I'm used to winning Emmys for other people. I'm kind of like, and uh, this now. I mean, and it's not just because of the strike. This predates the strike. Um, I've been moving into publishing, and I just recently published a book called Stupid Writer Tricks. That's um, chock full of tips and about craft and about navigating the business for uh, you know aspiring screenwriters and, and oh that's that's oh, very, yeah I didn't uh, know about that yeah tell us what's the name of that book again it's called Stupid Writer Tricks it's available on Amazon and um, it's really it's 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 a funny book 
Good. Well, I've no, I have no doubt it'll be funny if you wrote it. I don't take myself terribly seriously, and it's a little unusual when it comes down to, you know, the how to screenwrite uh, category of, of of nonfiction. In that most of those books are written by people with no real credible credits. And you're right. They're written by normally people who lecture at UCLA in their creative writing courses or whatever. You know, you're right there. And it's hard to beat the actual experience. I mean, I know two guys who, who once wrote a little booklet for interns, how to come on a set you know, because no one ever told them what you do on a set, right? And, you know, what the do's and don'ts of coming on a set. And I remember when I, sorry to go off on a, a tangent here. I remember people starting journalism. No one ever told us, we did journalism course and people now do three years of journalism. No one ever tells you how to phone a source and ask them questions. Like they don't actually, you know, how do you introduce yourself on the phone? What, you know, what, what, you just start asking questions right away. Do you talk? How do you sell a story? How do you sell a story? That, that, that's the only way to learn, and 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 that's what I, I recount in this book. I mean, I I talk. It's interesting because I'm a lot of a lot of my co colleagues and peers save everything, you know, papers and contracts and you know various drafts, and um, you know as if the you know wow you know I'll have something for the Smithsonian or something, and I've never been a big fan of that, and I always figure you know I'm just going to stand or fall by the work and. Um, but during this one period of my life where I was transitioning from being an insurance broker to being a, a writer, I had this website and I was creating these, these, these rants and my daughter reread them. She said, you, you really ought to publish these cause it's really good stuff. And it was me making mistakes and just making my way into the business and blowing it and what not to do in a meeting and how not to take notes. And oh my God, I yes. love this. I don't. Yeah, well, I, I'm, we I, need to read this. I mean, funny we got off on a tangent it's there, but that's the only interesting part of my life. <laughs> so, well, no, I would just I would dispute that. Now, writing Carnavale, and the reason we're we're here uh, today, and I know people may think it's a bit early for Christmas, but we should you know if you want to plan your Christmas early. Yes. Uh, one great thing to do was would be to go and buy or, or subscribe. Get a, subscribe. So subscribe at Substack to Gingerbread, which is uh, Daniel's new project. Gingerland. Ginger, Gin, okay, excuse me, Gingerland. Yes. Sorry, there's obviously gingerbread in it, but Gingerland. Tell us oh, about yeah. what what is Gingerland? It sounds to me, it, when I started reading it, it made me think about Dickens and how Dickens um, published his books episodically. So people had to wait, you know, they were stuck waiting for the next chapter and in anticipation. And I think, are you following something of a similar model here? Uh, my model is, is Charles Dickens. And, and for a couple of reasons. And one, one is, one is, uh, you know, at the time he wrote A Christmas Carol, he was living in a very, very cruel, rough era, um, a coarse era, and where Christmas was not really considered a big holiday. And, and you know, the movie The Man Who Invented Christmas does a pretty good job of re recounting that milieu. Um, and I really think that we live in analogous time now. And I thought, you know, I've been thinking that, you know, what the world needs is a really good Christmas story that celebrates all those things, the spirit of Christmas, generosity, looking after people who, are, who aren't as well off as you are, um, kindness, um, you know, understanding that we're all just, you know, as they say in the movie, we're all passengers um, 
in this life together and that nobody is superior to anybody else that um that we need to take care of each other and and christmas is the season where we do that and and so i you know that was that's that's one of the big inspirations for me was a christmas carol um and um and 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 so yeah i mean i'm not going to compare myself to dickens because that's so I think we should explain to people. I think we I should like ex- Substack and all yeah, that. Yeah, so people because a lot of people out there might not know what Substack is. Substack is well, you, actually, yeah. you tell us what Substack is. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. A, no, it's an interesting. I, I, th- I think that's what you know. In some ways, when you think about, you know, Dickens, by the way, was an in, was an innovator in that way that oh, of publishing his novels episodically. And yeah, so, people, in a way, in a way, yes. what, in a way, what you're doing, in a way, what you're doing is, um, is a kind of a version of that. So you've looked at kind of the landscape of opportunities, and there is this new technology in a way right there's this new way of getting information out to people that kind of bypasses the traditional well again gatekeepers. like i mean like dickens i'm i'm a i'm a you know i started my life as an entrepreneur and and so i'm kind of a bit of a writer businessman and um there were a couple of things i want to do i want to retain i didn't I, mean, I could have gone straight to the studios and pitched this um but what i wanted to do is retain um the ip and, and control the ip um and um and i looked around there's okay well we could kindle publish it and and then just start you know trying to get people to pre-order it and you know do all that and advertise and and that's the standard way i think for most most self-published authors and then the other way was to okay i i i was reading a lot of substacks but not fiction mostly journalists that's been um a big boon to journalists who want to be truly independent. And I thought I want to be truly independent. I don't want anybody editing me. I don't want anybody telling me what will be more popular, you know, um, uh, I don't need notes. And um, other than those of my peers, when I give it, give them chapters and say, what do you think? You know, I started, I I thought the Substack is an interesting uh, platform because I can do this and not only am I able to publish one, you know, do it and publish one chapter at a time, but after the first 14 chapters that constitute part one, I can then, you know, I can then install a paywall so that, you know, only paid subscribers have access to the balance of the book. Um, and they, the first 14 chapters, they've had a chance to see if they like it and want to continue with it. Um, but more importantly, uh, it's not just the chapters. There's, there's other material in there. Like, you know, you're watching it be created. You're, you're, I'm trying to give, I'm trying to build a community and, and, and not only let people into my headset as far as, you know, creating this thing um, and the process of creation and get a sort of backstage pass to that, um, but also to be able to weigh in and, and help me out. So, I mean, a good example is I needed to find an illustrator and, I was having a terrible time. And I, what I wanted was something because I'm, I'm publishing the big conceit in this is that it's being published as having been written by a guy named uh, PJ Hummel. And, um, and, and PJ is presented as a guy who, who wrote the book in 1923 and then died in 1924. And, and because of his premature death, you know, the, the book sort of fell out of, um, fell out of uh, uh, print, and and this is sort of we're restoring a lost classic, you know. And I I want to find somebody who could do 
the kinds of illustrations and plates that I grew up with um, that were in, um, you know, the, in books by, you know, uh, by Johnny, uh, Johnny Gruel, the Raggedy Ann and Andy books and those beautiful color plates. And um, my illustrator was referred to me by my readers. And one of my readers said, you got to check out Zelda Devon. And I said, okay. And so I checked out Zelda and I went, oh, sh and then we talked and all the touchstones, all the, all the, all the artists that, that I was thinking about, she, she loves. And, and here's this, this wonderful, very, very successful um, illustrator um, for commercial work. And, and she, she's a master of all the tools that a professional illustrator, you know, they do everything digitally now. And she says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to set aside my computer. I'm going to pull out my paints. So all of these plates are painted and they're just gorgeous. They look, I said, all I, wish I, I gave her the manuscript and I said, I want this to look like it could have been illustrated in the, in the 1920s. It does. And they're beautiful. They're, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. That's what she's been delivering. And it's just, it's so beautiful. And so I'm, I'm just thrilled. With so her. you, you're suggesting, and I see this in the intro that, that people, uh, read, start reading this to their kids f four days before Christmas. Is that right? No, not me. That was PJ Hummel. He, he's the one who, who came up with that thing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think what I want to do is have people make it a tradition, read part one, two, three, and four so that they finish the book on Christmas Eve and it becomes, um, it becomes a, a, a family tradition, something that kids grow up with and it's very special um, and brings them together. I, I just keep picturing, you know, even, you know, m grandma and grandpa you know, sitting by a fire and, and, and everybody having cocoa and huddled together and listening to the, the adventures of Holly, Nicholas, and baby Jim Sugarplum and, and how they, you know, fall out of their enchanted wonderland into the real world and, 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 and struggle to find their way back. And Mark Twain, when he wrote Huckleberry Finn, um, he just thought, oh, you know, it's a sequel to Tom Sawyer. It's another kid's book. And then I mean, it would be highly controversial because one of the main characters, um, Jim, was a black man. He was presented as a fully, fully formed like the like character, and and people just were kind of outraged by that. And um, Twain didn't understand it until many, many years later, and he said, "Oh, you know, now I know what made him so mad." Um, in this one, I, I I suspect the idea of being in a virtual world, which is what the, 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 the ginger kids are in, is this enchanted winter wonderland that's basically a holiday diorama. And then that they think that's the world. It's Christmas is always around the corner. And, and, then, and then they fall through a hole in a butter brickle floor and they find themselves out and they find themselves in a perfect replica of their ginger gingerland mountain house and what we realize is that their world is just a, a holiday diorama in the lobby of a big adirondack hotel and um and 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 sometimes i think there's something connected to you know people putting themselves back in the real world and and experiencing the real world in in all its sort of harsh reality um and that many of us create a create bubbles, digital bubbles for ourselves, 
um, that warp, uh, I mean, really distort uh, um, the reality, you know? I mean, so um, I don't know. That's as much as I've tried to self-analyze. So mm-hmm. the, do you yeah. do you envisage eventually having the book public, having hard copies of the book, or will it remain digital? Or what what's the plan? Well, the plan is this: is I'm trying to build up my subscribership, and what I really want to do, and I need to beef it up like a lot. And I got about 500 subscribers. I've got, um, I've got, you know, uh, and uh, roughly, you know, eight percent of them are paid subscribers. Um, what I want to do is by Christmas, by this Christmas, I want to have enough subscribers to offset the expenses I've incurred already for the, you know, for the illustration, which is you know, significant. Um, and, and, uh, and the printing costs and be able to give every single one of the subscribers, it, their subscription is a pre-order. Uh, a, like a deluxe signed and numbered edition of the first edition of Gingerland. And that's my, that's my goal. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how to get there because I'm not a, you know, I'm not a big marketing guy. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess it's getting on podcasts like this. Yes. yes. So how do people subscribe? Well. How do people subscribe to your Substack? Uh, you know, I'm always posting things on the internet. They can go to my website. There's a, there's a button there to go to Gingerland right up at the top. It's very easy to remember. It's, uh, it's Knauf, K-N-A-U-F, my last name, dot TV. Um, they can also just go directly to Substack and type in Gingerland and it'll take them there as well. They can probably put in in google substack gingerland and and it'll be right there at the top of the uh yeah. and what, the data pile and what so. we're going to do is we're going to put all those links very clearly in the show notes so people can just click and it's free doesn't cost anything um and you know if you want to upgrade you know um if i can pull this book thing off that'd be great but even if i don't um i'm telling people you your name as a supporter of this project will end up in the acknowledgements and, you know, at the end of the book. And maybe a hundred years from now, you know, your name will be in the book as one of the people who I couldn't have done it without. So, you know, you, you... a lot of our people are out there complaining about the, ter- the stuff they're watching on TV, the stuff they're reading, the messages they're getting. There's no messages in this book except joy and fun and laughter and, kindness. and kindness and a Christmas message and a message about the real world versus a made-up world. It's very interesting themes. So you need to go now, and you need to go to Substack and put in Gingerland, or you need to go put into into the Googles, Gingerland, Substack, but and it, subscribe, because so let's support people like Daniel. Ideology-free. There's no... Yeah, there's, it's ideology-free. You know, yeah. And it's funny when you, you know, when you describe how you'd like people to, you know, potentially at, you know, coming up to Christmas, do this, you know, reading to children, like for, from, you know, for the, you know, in the four different parts of the book. It's, it's funny how clearly, you know, that certain things in your life, you know, whatever age you get to, that, that stand out, like really stand out. And I have a literally, I can see 
the room my mother and I, it's a very it's a, you should look it up sometimes she she read a book to us called the first confession it's a short story um you know um written by frank o'connor an irish writer it's it's br- it's absolutely brilliant but i have such a memory of her reading that to us and i think there's something mm-hmm. you know children are all stuck looking at devices but honestly there's nothing quite like a grown-up that's loved reading to children they just adore it and it's funny they they can hook into that it's funny it's almost like that's hardwired into children yeah. that even though they've got all these devices and TVs and all this kind of stuff their own mum or dad reading to them there is nothing quite like it and I think that th- this is something that, that, so I, I would encourage people to subscribe to Daniel's book and to do the thing that he's asking for people to do and then you know and you can show and I've I've read I haven't read the whole book, but I've read quite a bit of it. And I mean, it is, it's, um, you need an adult reader. It's not, it's not a child, you know, the child can't read this himself or herself. So you're, you know, you need the nice adult reader to read this. But there's so much adventure in it and there's so much kind of geography to it and smells <laughs> and colour in it through the descriptions that, that Daniel has. That it's actually, it's a really gorgeous thing. And it could be a really lovely, as you say, Daniel, it could become this gorgeous family tradition. And I think there's just not enough of that. It's it's written in a you know one of it took me a year to write this thing and I'm when I write a, when I write screenplays I'm fast I mean I can write an episode of network television in a week it's quick um, but a big part of writing it was finding the voice for the book and I started it as a you know true children's book with limited vocabulary and simple sentences and I realized I I just this isn't working I don't like the way this is going and then I thought about all the books I loved as a child and. You know, uh, foremost among them was Ralph Dahl's work, and and uh, he didn't write down to anybody. And those books were really designed to be read to children rather than read by children. Um, though I've sat down with my eleven-year-old, and she'll 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 get so excited when I'm reading it, and she'll go, "Okay, let me read now, let me read now," and she'll grab it and she'll tackle a chapter. And it's 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 a challenge for her, but she's able to sound out the words. And if if she needs a definition. You know, I'm I'm happy to give it to her, and so she's learning, and and so it's you know it, it's it it's not something that a child might want to read by themselves unless they were, you know, I think 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, but uh, for the little ones, you know, it's they're you know it's like reading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. They're gonna they're gonna understand that story, and it's written in a fairly sophisticated prose style. And like Ralph Dahl, there's you know, there's some, I mean, it's like, it's like a gentle Raul doll. There's, there's some acerbic, you know, acerbic passages in it. The bad guys are not your typical bad guys. The bad guy is this, you know, rapacious corporate beast uh, who, you know, wants to sh- show her, her, you know, big resort company, just how, you know, how, how, how amazing she is. And so she's bent on destroying, you know, Gingerland and, and the, her, her cohort is this sort of pompous artist, sort of beatnik. And, uh, and he's, uh, Monty and, and he's very full of himself. And, and so the, it's the kinds of people that kind of make all our lives a little bit less fun. So yeah, so that's a great description. A gentle role, Dal. Right? Yes, right. Yes. Very nice. Very. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So, uh, so Daniel, tell people again where they can where they can get it. The book is available um, on Substack. You can Google Gin, Substack Gingerland. You can go to my website, 
knoff.tv um, and you can get a link to it. There's contests that, that, that I, I run, you know, um, the latest one is I'm giving away a, a blacklist poster, a signed blacklist poster. So, you know, so, uh, you know, it's just trying to get people, you know, to, to refer their friends into it, you know, and yeah, we know plenty about that. Cause we've obviously done, you know, we've done these crowdfunding things, which are kind of, a, you know, in a sort of slightly, slightly, obviously slightly different, but, but yeah, but, uh, and it is about referring friends. It is about going there, reading, checking this thing out. And, well, and, and yeah, it shouldn't, it's free. It's complete. You can subscribe for free. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, a lot of you will want to upgrade to read the rest of the story. Yeah. You yeah. Know? But uh, come on, people out there, subscribe for free to this beautiful children's book, Gingerland. And then if, if you like it, you have the opportunity to subscribe and support real artists telling good stories uh, through story, uh, not through stories, but through story not through through I, I mean when i say true stories i mean genuine stories yes non no ideology yeah. something that your kids will love you no, will love no there are no live gingerbread people fail <laughs> i'm sorry to disavow you of uh, that belief but no well no. i have pj hummel pj hummel says differently yes. daniel mr daniel knopf yes in 2013 I'm just a cynical bastard. Yeah. Yeah, no. Oh, yeah, you discovered him, but you're going to yes. tarnish his legacy by saying live on the interwebs that the, <laughs> uh, it's not true. Get, get you to a nunnery. Okay. Well, listen, we're very, very thankful for your time today, Daniel, and we'll have all those links up in our show notes. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's all Great. good. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Daniel. We'll okay. see you soon. Bye. Take care. So we're going to put all of the links to Gingerland up in all the show notes so everyone will know how to find how to find Daniel, how to find Gingerland, how to subscribe, how to help Daniel um, and how to get a copy of the book, because I think that's the plan. Right. Um, yeah. And I love his idea of doing this episodic, you know, creating a, a very special family time when you read chapters together. And as we said in the, in the piece, you know, it's um, it's not it's the child can't read this himself. A small child can't read this himself. But children, there's nothing they love more than being read to. They absolutely adore it. Um, and we know we know that. So we do know that. Yes. But um, I, I, but this is kind of we've kind of come to the end of the show, Phelan. Um, yes. Well, I just want to say, people, please subscribe to Gingerland. And you're so right. Children love being read to. I mean, I was shocked. Remember, we were with a child. They will just want you to read the same story again and again. And by the way, it's not it's not sanitized. It's it's family friendly, but it's not sanitized. Children love a bit of argy bargy and a bit of this, and a bit of that. You know, it's not uh, soft. It's nice. It's great. It's wonderful. Um, uh, and please, so please subscribe to Gingerland and make this a family tradition. We need better traditions, not worse traditions. Yeah, and, and, and I think, and I, yeah, and I would really urge people to support Daniel because he really is, um, a, you know, he's an artist and, um, and he's one of our, he's one of our own. Um, and he is, you know, he's a huge star, by the way, in Hollywood. I mean, this is a guy who create, you know, he, he wrote the uh, Astronauts. I think he might have created Astronauts, actually. And one, I think he was either nominated or won an Emmy for that, um, was also involved in the Blacklist. He has a very, very um, luminous career yeah. and we're hoping he has a very luminous career going forward. But please do support Gingerland. And please, please do support us. And the best thing that you can do for us right now is to go to Kevin Spacey Trial Unfiltered. Give us a rating. Give us a review. And uh, enjoy the rest of your holiday week. If you're traveling, I know it's a nightmare out there. We have been traveling and it's a nightmare out there. And I know that. And so travel safe, please.
Please do travel safe. I think a quick way to get to the podcast actually is kevinspaceypodcast.com. So please go there. Leave a review rating. It's very important. It's important that we that we stand up for justice and the rule of law, uh, especially around this Independence Day. So uh, good luck and we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Bye. Hey.